Um, there was a longtime mathematics professor at Vanderbilt University named Dr. Madison Surratt. And before giving a test, Dr. Surratt would, would always give his students the same pre-test spiel. And it, some version of something like this, he would say, today I'm giving two examinations, one in trigonometry and the other in honesty. I hope you will pass them both. Then he would say, if you must fail one, fail trigonometry. There are many good people in the world who can't pass trig, but there are no good people in the world who cannot pass the examination of honesty. Today, we're only going to read one verse in the book of James. And in that verse, James will teach us about word problems. And by that, I don't mean the, the kind of things that Dr. Surratt might have assigned his students in class or the, the, the problems you hated in math class when you were young. I just mean problems that we at times have keeping our word or problems we have in withholding a truth that needs to be told or saying things that we know that aren't true, word problems. James has talked a lot in this book about our words, the power of our tongues. And he's going to do it again today when he talks about our word. I think it's important with every time we meet and open the word together to start with this. This passage is probably about me. This is an easy one. When we start talking about people who haven't been honest, people who haven't kept their word, this is an easy one to think, boy, I wish so-and-so were here, or I hope so-and-so is listening. But in a passage about honesty, we should approach this honestly. We all have word problems at different times. And anytime we do, like Dr. Surratt said before each test, it, usually it's because we get stuck trying to pass the wrong test. Maybe you have word problems when you find yourself um, standing before someone or you're in a conflict with someone. And the test you want to pass is, I want to win the conflict. Once that becomes my, the main test I'm trying to pass, there can be times when, when honesty won't help me pass the test I actually want to pass. Saying something that's not true, exaggerating, withholding. Or maybe... Maybe I've messed up, I've done something wrong, and the test I want to pass is I don't want to face the consequences that come from doing what's wrong. So maybe once that becomes the test, I will withhold some truth so I don't have to face consequences I might, that might come. Or, or maybe it's just I don't want to disappoint this person I'm talking to. So we tell them 
what we think they want to hear instead of what I actually know to be true. Word problems. I'm going to do something this morning I normally don't do. We're going to read two passages this morning. The first from the book of James, James 5, 12. Then we're going to read what is surely his source for what he wrote here today. Something his half-brother Jesus said that was recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see why we'll read it in a second. But let's read James chapter 5, verse 12. Then a little passage from Matthew, and then let's talk about word problems. James 5.12 reads this way, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now earlier, before James was a Christian, his half-brother Jesus wrote that or said this it was recorded by Matthew and he said again you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord but I say to you make no oath at all either by heaven for it is the throne of God or by the earth because it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king nor shall you make an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black or you can't make it grow hair at all, as the case might be. But let your statement be yes and yes or no and no. Anything beyond these is of evil. There's our passage. So James had probably come to know the oral tradition of the Sermon on the Mount and drew from that. So we're gonna, we can talk about both of those passages at the same time. These passages are about oaths, swearing. We probably better define that term. A biblical oath is an assertion of truth that is joined to something or someone of considerable significance. Here's the way an oath worked. Uh, to get someone to believe me, I would take an oath on something bigger, greater that I care about. You might, hear, you might have heard someone in your life say, I swear on my mama that such and such is true. Or I swear by God that such and such is true. The idea is by connecting what you're going to say your assurance of the truth to something greater is that if, you, if what you say isn't true, or if you don't follow through on what you say you will do, that you bring shame not only on yourself, but on whatever it is you attached to it. So I would, if I swore by God, I would, I would bring shame on him, or on my mom, or on the temple, or on whatever else I swore by. Now, I want you to know this morning that what these passages don't do is prohibit any kind of vow or any kind of oath. It wasn't true in Jesus' day or James's day, and it's not true now. In fact, in the Old Testament that Israel had, taught, had been taught, it was okay to swear and actually swear by the Lord's name. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You must revere the Lord your God and serve Him and take oaths using His name only. God's name was the only thing they were supposed to swear by. The Jews of James' day and Jesus' day had missed that part. 
had forgotten that part. Because by their day, this weird system of oaths had developed in Israel where they could take these vows, swear these swears in a way where if they didn't follow through, they couldn't really be held accountable. This was probably aimed at foreigners. This sort of tricky talk went something like this. Somebody came, if I was a first century Jew and I, I want to sell my pottery or whatever or make a business deal with someone who's not familiar with the way things are supposed to work around here, I would swear by something that's not God, something lesser than that. If I swear by God and don't keep my vow, then I've broken the law. So I might swear by, like Jesus said, my head. Or I might swear by the temple or the gold that's in the temple or something like that. And that person didn't know that I can actually break this and no one around here will, will really make too big of a deal about it. It was the ancient equivalent of I had my fingers crossed. You ever do that when you were little? Is that still a thing, by the way? I had my fingers crossed, so I really didn't have to mean what I was saying. That's what James and what Jesus are trying to, 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 to do away with, to get Christians out of the habit of doing. It was this system of using lots of words to get lies believed. There is always a problem when someone has to use lots of words to get their word believed. There's always a problem, whether they're telling the truth at that point or not. There's a problem somewhere. So, again, this is not uh, Jesus' way and James' way of prohibiting any kind of vow or oath, there, there, though there are some Christian schools of thought that will teach you that. I don't want you to think that you're, you're, this is not really for me as long as I don't swear any of these weird swears or vow any of these weird vows or take any of these weird oaths. Then I'm okay with the heart of this passage. Don't think that way. In fact, oaths and vows are very appropriate and biblical in a given situation. The Apostle Paul, for example, did exactly in the New Testament what I've just described. Galatians 1.20, Paul writes to the Galatians, I assure you before God or by God that I'm not lying about what I'm writing to you. That is exactly what we just described. That is an oath in God's name. To help his point be believed. To the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.23, Now I appeal to God as my witness that there's a good reason I didn't come to visit you when I had earlier planned to. The book of Hebrews, written very late um, in, in the writings of the New Testament, just writes this, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and that oath serves as a confirmation to end all dispute. Here's what that last one means. There are times when an oath, when a vow is very appropriate and needed. If, if passages like the ones we read today outlaw all sorts of vows and oaths, then we're doing something very wrong when we do weddings around here. 
Because the central part of a wedding is the exchanging of vows, which are solemn oaths. There is a, there's a, a, a pastor's covenant. The Berean Fellowship of Churches has something called a pastor's covenant. It's a vow. It's an oath. I signed it uh, when we came here. What it says is, if there comes a point where I get so sideways with our elder board that we decide, I or they decide, I can't work here anymore, I won't go to a different church or start a new church in town and uh, try to sort of compete in, in ministry. I will leave. I've made that vow. You should hold me to that. But I ain't going anywhere, so... Um, if you are asked to testify in court, um, you will be asked to take, uh, to take an oath, a vow that you will swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, which means not half-truths, and you won't say anything that's not the truth. And that's okay. A contract is a vow, is an oath. It is two people writing out what they agree to do. An employment contract, a sales contract. And listen, not only are those things okay, in my opinion, they're more important now than they ever have been. You know why? Because our society is no longer founded on truth. In fact, it it doesn't care about truth. What I can get away with is way more important than what's true. As your pastor, I want to give you some advice. Get it in writing. It's wise. Those contracts and those oaths in court are so important because they are the only place almost where there's consequences for not telling the truth. We lie, we can lie everywhere else. We right? They lie to us on TV. They lie to us in the paper. They lie to us everywhere. But boy, you go into court and lie in a way where it can be proven that you're lying. You go to jail for that. If you breach contract, you can get in trouble for that. And it's almost the, any, the only places where it seems like the truth matters because it's so easy. It's so profitable to lie. And as a society, you know, it's funny, I wrote this three weeks ago, this sermon, but just this last week, I heard a radio spot on uh, My Bridge Radio, Pastor Brian Clark from Lincoln Berean had a little radio spot on there about this issue. And he said uh, about our society not being built on, uh, on the truth anymore. It's what the whole spot was about. He said, we don't value the truth. We make our opinion And we so value our opinions that the only thing we listen to is stuff that already matches our opinion. Even if what we listen to is more lies. So, there are times when we need certain vows. Get it in writing. Draw up a contract. And James's concern is not prohibiting any of those things. So what is James's concern and Jesus's concern? The concern is integrity, is honesty, 
is the dependability of my word and your word as Christians. Your yes should mean yes. Your no should mean no. You should mean what you say. You should say what you actually mean. And your word should be your bond. The purpose of these passages that we read this morning is yes, Jesus and James, they want to do away. Don't swear by any of these other weird, dumb things. They did want to do away with this silly system of swearing by the gold in the temple or any of that stuff. But more than that, the teaching is for you as a Christian, it doesn't matter what, how you have said what you said. It's like, it doesn't matter if you have or have not taken an oath. It's like you're always under oath. What James and what Jesus wanted to do is raise the stakes of our own personal integrity to the point where we always act like we can be held accountable for when we say something that's not true. Because in reality, we can and we will. That's why James ends his verse with, so that you don't fall into judgment. Because there is a judge that we will stand before. We should act like we're always under oath. People should be able to depend that what we say is true. And that we will follow through with what we say. And we don't need a vow. We don't need a pinky swear. We don't need any of that. For us, the other party shouldn't necessarily need the contract. I would advise them to get it. But our word should be enough. So this isn't a prohibition against any kind of oath or of vow or oath. Those are important and appropriate at times. But these things teach us and remind us that if we're going to grow in this faith, which is what the book of James is about, right? Growing in this faith as we follow Jesus, that that's who we are following. Yes, Jesus is the only road or the only way to eternal life. He is the way and he is the life, but that's not all he is. He is the way and the truth and the life. And following Jesus means being dedicated to the truth. Because it's so intertwined in who he is. Our yes should be yes. Our no should be no. And our word should be our bond. And just like every other paragraph in the book of James, we are imperfect at this. We fail at this in the front door and in the back door, so to speak. The church is no stranger to folks who, who don't always tell the truth. Because we get stuck trying to pass the wrong test. Let's say... One reason why we fail at this is because it's very easy to have an idol of acceptance in our hearts. 
And what I mean by that is, when I stand before someone, them accepting me, liking me, becomes so important to me that I've got these two different tests in front of me. One test is I want to pass the test in their eyes that they will like me. The other test is that test of honesty. And sometimes I can't pass both. And if what becomes more important to me is you liking me, I can sacrifice the truth on the idol, on the altar of your acceptance. And, and that's idolatry. Because instead of following the one who is truth, I want to follow your preferences. And that's real. But it's idolatry. I'm trying to pass the wrong test, solve the wrong problem. Anybody ever feel like it's hard to tell this person what they ought to hear? Anybody ever say less than the truth because of that? I told you you have word problems. The guy preaching this sermon does too. I want to give you a couple of hints. Practical things, a mindset thing and a practical thing to say to help in that situation. A mindset thing. First, in those uncomfortable situations, have a long-term view of that situation. And here's what I mean by that. If I asked you what kind of person you like and respect, the kind of person who always says what they mean and you know they're telling you the truth, or the kind of person who tells you what you want to hear, what are you going to answer? Our, our own human experience tells us, in the long run, I respect the truth teller. But in the short term... It can sure feel like I can pass this test of acceptance, but that always comes with the risk, the long-term risk, even from a human perspective of not being the kind of person who I know is respected. So I have a long-term view of acceptance. Have a long-term view of whose acceptance is most important to me. That also helps. But now a practical way to get yourself out of that situation. The next time you're in a, a, a situation like that, I'll use Jerry. Jerry will be my example today. So I feel like I need to tell Jerry something maybe Jerry's not going to want to hear. He, he's asked me to do something, and I don't think I can do it, but I don't want to let him down. Uh, I, need, I need to confront him as my friend, whatever it is. But I need to respond in a way that's not going to feel good to Jerry. And I know it. And I'm in this, I'm deciding which test to pass, the test of Jerry's acceptance or the test of honesty. How about I just lay all that out on the table for Jerry? You can just say this, oh man, Jerry, I respect you so much. I like you and I want you to like and respect me. That's, and I, it's really hard for me to disappoint people in general and you specifically. That's why it's so hard for me to say what I'm about to have to say. Now, Jerry still may not like what I'm about to say, but at least he has heard the part of that other test that I want to. Now, he has to decide whether he likes and respects me, but I can't control. I'm not going to use dishonesty to try to control that test in him. Just one idea. 
You know, another reason why we have word problems. We struggle with truthfulness in our society, in our culture, is because what we can get away with has become so much more important than what is right, than what is true. I, I do... I always want to be honest with you. I always am honest up here. I just want to make sure you hear this. I don't want to blow smoke at you, so to speak. Sometimes we teach old adages like, cheaters never win. Right? Liars never prosper. Those aren't always true. You know, like ultimately, we can say from an eternal perspective that's true, but here on earth, We should be honest enough to admit there are times when lies are beneficial. There are times when dishonesty can go a long ways toward getting people what they would like to have. And I say that's important to admit that. Because as Christians, it takes real commitment to the truth to be committed to the truth. We have to admit ahead of time that we're going we're gonna to be in situations where a lie would seem a lot more advantageous than the truth. Where dishonesty would seem a lot better than honesty. It takes real commitment to be the kind of person that says, you know what? I'm going to be in a situation where I may lose something uh, that I desire by being committed to the truth. And I, I want to commit now to be honest, then, though it may cost me down here in the earthly short term. But it's tough because our society trains us to feel rewarded for a lack of truthfulness. Isn't that true? It starts very early when we're very young. Parents, I don't want to start uh, teaching the parenting class before we get in there, but is the truth valued in your home? Don't answer that too quickly. Are you committed to the truth in your home with your kids? Don't answer that too quickly. Here's one way we tend to train our kids that lies are acceptable and profitable. On the altar of acceptance, even. When your kid asks you for something you don't want them to have, whether it is the candy bar while you're in the checkout line, or the new video game, or to spend the night at so-and-so's house, do you always tell them why you're saying no? Or... Do you say something that's not exactly true that makes it seem like you actually can't say yes? Oh, mommy doesn't have money for that candy bar today. Daddy, we, we cannot afford that video game. When the truth is, of course you can. Or, you know, you can't spend the night at so-and-so's house just because we have such a big day tomorrow. And I want to make sure that we are you know, rested and ready, when that's actually not the reason. Anybody ever do that one? Do our kids eventually figure out that everything we say is not exactly true? 
Yeah. Do, do your kids figure out how to emotionally control you away from calling them on mistruth? In other words, if you call them, if I call him or her on this, I know what's going to happen. You don't believe me. You don't trust me. Right? You know, one thing that's so baked into our society, we somehow learn this from a very young age. We learn that this is very valuable in our culture. I am innocent until I am proven guilty. I am, hear me clearly, I am super glad that's in the American legal system. Uh, I'm going to save you the civics lecture as to why that's so important as far as our court system goes. But let me tell you, it's not exactly true. In fact, it's not at all true. Think about this. I've done something wrong, but I'm innocent unless you have rock-solid proof and can convince 12 other people that I'm actually guilty. That's not true. You know when I became guilty? The second I did something wrong. Whether or not you could get 12 strangers to agree to that is a completely separate situation that's valuable in the court system, and it's a terrible way to run your home or teachers your classroom. But it can feel as a parent, as a teacher, as an administrator. It can feel like, man, something tells me this isn't true. But, like, I don't have any evidence. So I can't accuse them of this. And you know what we learn? This is why we value lying so much in our society. Because we know the only time I can face consequences is if there's video evidence or documents. The smoking gun. You know, so you know what's profitable? I lie and I lie and I lie and I lie because you can't prove it. Bart Simpson is the prophet of our age. I didn't do it. Nobody saw me. You can't prove anything. That was Bart's line. So parents, here's what you can do. I want you to remember a few things if you want to value the truth in your home. First, remember this. Your kids will lie. Okay? They don't have to learn it in the public schools or from popular culture either. It comes baked into us. Your kids will lie because their parents lied. One thing that keeps us from valuing the truth, we have an idol in our heart about the goodness of our kids. About the exceptionality of our kids, that they would never lie to me. Of course they will, just like you lied to your parents. So remember that. Second, remember this. Your home is not an American courtroom. People are not innocent until they're proven guilty. Nobody has the right to a lawyer, and you as a parent can say no for whatever reason you want. And you have the biblical authority to be wrong once in a while. 
The basis of your relationship with your kids is not that you believe those little liars. That you trust everything they say. That's ridiculous. Parents, let's say that last previous line again. It's okay that you be wrong once in a while trying your best. One thing we're scared to call our kids on something we can't prove is because if we wind up being wrong, then we, oh man, then we're wrong. So I just won't do anything because I don't want to be wrong. But if I'm not shaping this little life to value the truth, that's way wronger. Parent, it's okay when you believe your, you, you believe your child just might be lying to say, son, I love you, but I don't think that's true. And I'm, I am so dedicated in you valuing the truth and this being a, a, a household of truth that I, I don't want you to believe that lying is beneficial, so I'm going to remove any benefit of this situation that we're talking about just because I don't think this is headed toward the truth or coming from the truth. It is okay to say that. And yes, they're going to go, what? You don't believe me? You don't trust me? You say, you know what? Mommy might be wrong. Like, I don't. I don't have proof either direction. But I'm doing the best I can. And I believe this isn't true. So that's what we're going to hit. I'm going to remove the benefit of this. And now, When you wind up being wrong, you just have another great opportunity to model something else that's very valuable in your home, which is admitting when you are wrong and asking for forgiveness. The very first year we moved here, many moons ago now, um, first semester in a new school, get a phone call, it's the school nurse. It's Jackie. We all know who we're talking about here. There's no sense hiding the innocent here. Uh, she calls and says, Angie, not Jackie. Jackie's back there. Uh, it's Angie. Thank you. We all know who we're talking about. We also know Pastor Matt has no idea what he's talking about. It's Angie. Uh, Angie calls and says, hey, Isaac, our oldest son, Ike, he's in the office. He's in, he's in the nurse's office. Uh, he's been here twice. I took his temperature. He doesn't have a fever. He doesn't look bad. I sent him back to class. He's back for the second time. Kind of, he's going to keep coming. You probably should just uh, get up. She didn't believe him either, right? She's raised kids. She knows how this works. One of them sitting right back there. She gets it. She knows how this works. So I go pick up Ike. All the way home, I'm giving him a dad speech about, you know, Ike, sometimes you're just not feeling your tip top and you've got to keep going right? You've got to, you, someday you're only going to have so many days off of work. You're, you're probably not going to be a pastor where you only work one day a week. You're only going to have so many days off and some, you're just going to have to keep going to work. And he was, listen, we got home, we parked the car. He got out and vomited all over the front yard right out there. It's like, okay. Now listen, I didn't believe him. I was wrong. And our relationship was not irreparably harmed. Because I said, oh, Ike, I am, I'm so sorry. Like, I still meant what I said, but this is a terrible time for that speech. <laughs> you, 
you were telling me the truth, and, I, and I'm so grateful you, that you tell me the truth. Dad was wrong. Can you, can you forgive me for that? And of course he did. No harm. No harm. In fact, it was kind of a positive experience. Does all that make sense with kids? Good. Because it doesn't only happen with kids. In fact, I told you those just to rope you in. Because the, time when, the times when you don't trust me, you don't believe me, are used the most, that cause the most damage, ain't with kids. As adults, with our business partnerships, but mainly with our spouses, you don't believe me, you don't trust me, is usually used to take the focus off what I really have done and suddenly make the idea that she doesn't trust me the actual problem. See, I want, if Rachel calls me on something, I want to turn that around and make her feel so bad for daring to question me that suddenly the problem is she assumed that I don't always tell the truth. <gasps> when you say it, it's kind of silly, but we do this all the time. When if I want her to trust me, you know what a bad way to do that is? berate her for not trusting me. You know what the right way to do that is? Open up that area of my life to make it easy for her heart to trust me, which is why I will never have an electronic device that she doesn't have access to and doesn't get a report from. I will never have access to money that she can't see where it comes from and where it goes. Why? Because I need her to be the cops to catch me in doing what's wrong? No, because I want her to trust me. So the best thing I can do for her to trust me is make it easy for her to trust me. Because I don't want to be the man that takes lots of words to convince her that what I'm saying is true. Anytime. It takes lots of words to convince people that you're telling the truth. We have a problem. And the problem may not be that I'm even being untruthful, but the solution is transparency and accountability that I enter into voluntarily to help her heart or that other person's heart trust That was all the way we fail in the front door. I've used up all our time, but quickly. Another, another way we fail at this letting our yes be yes and our no be no thing is we know we want to keep our word, right? We know we don't want to let people down. So one bad solution to that is just to never, never commit to anything because then I don't have to worry about not following through. Surely, what James and what Jesus were teaching today is not, don't figure out where God wants you to be committed. 
Because then you don't have to worry about letting anyone down. See, I'm always free to pursue whatever I want to pursue. And I never have to let anybody down if I, if I just keep myself right headed to what, whatever it is I want. I had more to say about that, but for time's sake, we'll land the plane. The key, the center of this passage is probably found here. As a Christian, I should do the, put the work in. I should seek to find what the, where the Lord wants my yeses to be. I should have the list physically, mentally, what are the most important things in my life? And am I committed to those things? That's where I start and I let my nose be elsewhere. And that can be costly. But also, these passages teach us, beg us and command us to commit to the truth in myself and in my family. And in the to take a long-term view of these things, to, to make sure that I see the temporary relief that lies create. See those from a long-term perspective. Because ultimately, they're, they're foolish. What would it take for, for you and me and for us as a group to look more like Jesus and that we are people of the truth? we're going to grow in this faith, it's pretty important. Let's pray. Our Father, the Lord Jesus uh, said to you one time uh, that your word is truth. And Jesus called himself the truth. But we live in a culture that does not value the truth. It values what is beneficial in the moment. It values what it can get away with. And God, where we fall into those things, it makes us so much not like you. So God, grow us in the truth. Grow our integrity, our honesty, and grow our courage to stick to those things even when it is personally costly. We want to commit to the truth because we want to be committed to you. And the truth is what you are. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Stand up with us. We'll finish our time.